a great pleasure to be here uh, today, uh, again, uh, to speak to you. Um, I'm taking no credit for the attendance record. I'm attributing it all to the countercyclicality of forecast uncertainty. It's well known. I spoke here a couple of years ago, of course. Um, it's a pleasure to be back. I've given many, many speeches in many, many different venues um, during my four-year tenure so far as president, and um, this one's quite unique. And it's not just uh, the plethora of policy-oriented economists in the audience, uh, which is uh, a record for me, I think, um, but um, spring rolls, green tea, and lazy Susan. Don't see that anywhere else on the speaking tour that I go on. So um, it's uh, a very unique venue, and I'm very pleased to be here up in Washington to speak with uh, brethren uh, in the economics profession. My topic is the current economic situation and the outlook uh, for the period ahead. Um, before I begin, let me uh, remind you of the usual disclaimer, which is in full effect today, uh, that my, the views expressed are my own and not necessarily those of any of my colleagues on the Federal Open Market Committee. The obvious background for um, today's economic situation is the remarkable boom in housing uh, that ended a couple of years ago. So a couple of numbers from 1995 to 2005, new housing starts increased more than 50%. Existing home sales um, increased, existing home prices increased by more than 150%, according to the Case-Shiller uh, Repeat Sales Index, and the home ownership rate increased significantly as well, from 64% to over 69%. I think it's undoubtedly the case that favorable fundamentals contributed to the boom. Per capita real income grew much more rapidly um, in the decade after 1995 than in the decade before that. Real mortgage interest rates were relatively low prior, uh, compared to prior periods, especially after 2002. In many parts of the country, uh, the, the inelasticity of the supply of buildable lots, lots you can use to build houses on, meant that the increase in housing demand uh, generated significant price increases. Uh, the area around the District of Columbia is a notable example of that. Elsewhere, price appreciation was more modest, never got into the double digits in Charlotte, for example, despite 4% per annum job growth. Housing demand ultimately became satiated in a number of markets, however, um, late in, uh, 19, in 2005, and housing activity construction activity peaked in early 2006 in several regions. Since then, uh, new housing starts have fallen by 55%, and since mid-06, home prices have fallen by, six, by 18%. These should be familiar statistics to all of you. Arguably, developments in housing finance have played a substantial role in the behavior of housing markets in recent years. Here, I think the central story is the technology-driven wave of innovation and the delivery of retail credit. That dramatically expanded access to mortgage credit over the last decade, just as it expanded access to unsecured consumer credit in the decade before that. Technologies also contributed to innovation in securitization and other forms of intermediation of credit flows, and that also helped lower borrowing costs and contributed to the growth in housing finance. As with any new service innovation, however, there's some experimentation and risk involved. You never know at the time you introduce a product just how big the market for this new product is going to be, how large it's going to go, um, how profitable it's going to end up being for you. 
in hindsight, it seems clear that the success of new methods of lending to riskier borrowers in the housing market was to some extent dependent on sustained home price appreciation. That provided borrowers, especially borrowers who became strained and, and behind on payments, the ability to refinance, and it thus masked the extent to which a more inclusive underwriting was generating more risks uh, for the financial system. When housing prices began to fall in many regions, delinquencies and defaults naturally rose, particularly among mortgages that were made in 2006 and 2007, because naturally those were the ones where the equity the borrower had in the house was less. It takes some time, however, for the ultimate uh, cumulative loss experience of a given vintage of mortgage originations uh, to become evident. So it wasn't until the middle of last year, after, well after home prices peaked in many regions, that more quantitative evidence emerged regarding the substantial extent to which mortgages made in 2006 would underperform previous vintages of mortgages. Then the ensuing adjustment in underwriting standards that's happened across the board, across many markets, has further contributed to the decline in housing demand. A large number of mortgage foreclosures that we're experiencing right now has resulted in an urgent problem, and it's one that we at the Federal Reserve are responding to with direct actions. The Federal Reserve System's Home Ownership and Mortgage Initiative is a multi-pronged effort to understand and respond to this recent rise in foreclosures. I'd like to take a minute to describe it to you, tell you what we're doing. First, we're using our extensive expertise in economic research and analysis, to increase understanding of the events, increase economists' professional understanding of the events. We're tracking conditions in mortgage and housing markets pretty closely and conducting ongoing research to fill important gaps in our knowledge of the, the economics of, of some of these relationships. What we learn, we're communicating to the public through a variety of channels. For example, we're providing community groups with analysis that identifies neighborhoods with high rates of foreclosures so that they can better target their home counseling efforts. We've organized foreclosure forums across the country with the theme recovery, renewal, and rebuilding. We just held the first one in Atlanta, and four more are scheduled throughout the, through the fall. Furthermore, we've posted interactive maps on the New York Fed's website showing the incidence and performance of subprime mortgages across the country. Community groups, uh, consumers can go on those and and look and see what the incidence of, of home foreclosure is um, in various regions. Second, we're using our extensive footprint across the nation to engage and collaborate with relevant parties, such as community groups, uh, government officials, local government officials, and lenders, to help them take practical steps to address the local problems caused by mortgage foreclosures. We're partnering with NeighborWorks America, a national, a national organization that has um, regional and local uh, chapters um, by providing analysis and developing tools and training programs for their efforts to stabilize neighborhoods and to deal with the problems of uh, vacant properties. Furthermore, we've hosted and continue to host many meetings and workshops around the country designed to bring together stakeholders who are interested in reducing the incidents and effects of foreclosures. Our basic aim in all of this is to leverage the Fed's comparative advantage in research and geographic reach to assist local responses to mortgage foreclosure problems. So, uh, returning to the outlook, 
development in house developments in housing finance have been central to the drama in credit markets since last August. And the story here is the continuing reassessment of the fundamental values of non-prime mortgages. I think it's fair to say that a deterioration in the housing market of the magnitude we've seen, particularly the widespread declines in home prices, was not assigned much probability by borrowers, lenders, or investors, even if many observers argue in retrospect that it should have been foreseen. As losses have accumulated, demand has fallen for the financial securities that are exposed to those assets, as well as for a range of related securities. Many of these securities were the liabilities of entities with explicit or implicit bank lending support. Many banks that provided such guarantees have had to either uh, meet large funding demands or bring the impaired assets onto their balance sheets. Uncertainty about the scale of such adjustments has meant higher funding and capital costs for many institutions, although risk premium has increased far more for some institutions than for others. After the housing market peaked, the steady fall in home construction has become a sizable drag on overall growth. Last year, the decline in residential investment subtracted about a percentage point from GDP growth. And in the first quarter of the year, it lowered GDP growth by uh, more than a percentage point. Moreover, moreover, the swollen inventories of unsold homes is going to continue to depress prices and new construction. For example, the vacancy rate for owner-occupied housing was 2.9% in the first quarter. That's the highest value by far recorded in the 52-year history of that data series. Most lenders have eliminated the riskier, uh, innovative mortgage products from their, their lineups. And that makes sense, given what we and they and others have learned from the recent performance of such products. But it makes home ownership that much more costly than it was during the boom and it's going to slow the housing market recovery going forward. Thus, most observers are very hesitant about calling a bottom in home construction or sales or prices. That's a hesitancy that I share. But even if housing market activity does manage to bottom out later this year, as I think is likely, it is also likely that the recovery should be exceedingly slow. Until earlier this year, the bad news had been limited to housing, uh, but that's no longer the case. Last year, more than 16 million cars and trucks were sold in this country. In the first quarter of 2008, the sales rate fell to 15.3 million units, and in the second quarter, the sales rate fell to 14.1 million units. Not surprisingly, motor vehicle assemblies have fallen 21% this year. That's a stringent dose of bad news on top of the housing market. But a couple of other demand components are actually providing somewhat brighter news of late. The demand for exports, for example, has been strong due to robust economic activity abroad and the weakness of the dollar in foreign exchange markets. Exports added a full percentage point to real GDP growth in 06 and 07, and they're likely to make healthy contribution to growth this year as well. I've also been surprised by indicators of firmness in business investment spending. At the turn of the year, we began to hear anecdotes uh, around our district and elsewhere in the country of commercial development projects being deferred or canceled outright. Many of us had been expecting earlier this year uh, to see a contraction in the commercial construction figures by now. But since the beginning of the year, private, non-residential construction has increased by more more than 5.5%. 
Still, I think it's reasonable to expect at least some slowing later this year. Commercial construction projects tend to have a fairly long lead time, and architectural buildings have fallen off quite notably in recent months. Thus, it wouldn't surprise me to see the pace of commercial construction soften substantially in coming months. Business spending on equipment and software this year has also been firmer than I had anticipated. For example, shipments of non-defense capital goods, excluding aircraft, um, sort of a core uh, feature of um, business spending on equipment, have increased for three straight months, and they're now higher than at any point since December of 2000. This category covers a large uh, chunk of business equipment investment, and these recent reports strike me as a sign that business capital spending is holding up relatively well given the circumstances. Real consumer spending, obviously the largest component of demand, has slowed since the very end of last year and was sluggish for the first few months of this year, rising by an annual rate of only 1.1% uh, from November through April. The slow growth in consumer spending was understandable uh, given the restrained growth we've seen in household income. For example, real disposable personal income increased by only half a percent during the first four months of this year. Personal consumption expenditures picked up notably in May, however, but it, this could be just attributable to the, the um, disbursement of the first slug of those federal stimulus payments. So it's going to be difficult to tell uh, for several months whether it's a fundamental improvement in household spending trends that we're seeing. A major reason for the slow growth in household income is the weak state of labor markets. Job growth was robust in 2006, with payrolls expanding by about 175,000 jobs per month. Job growth tailed off in 07 as the residential construction industry began shedding workers. And payrolls have fallen every month so far this year, with an average loss of 73,000 jobs per month. Consistent with this picture of a worsening labor market, the unemployment rate has risen from a cyclical low of 4.4% in March 07 to 5.5%. Um, in June of this year, the, the latest months we have numbers for. Another factor that has dampened real income growth is the large increases we've seen in food and energy prices. Now, forecasting such prices is um, a quite challenging endeavor, as any of you who've attempted to do so have no doubt discovered. If they follow the relatively flat trajectory implied by futures prices, and that's a big F, they would no longer restrain the growth in as opposed to the level of real income. But I said, as I said, that's a big if, um, uh, and it's uh, the path of energy and food prices going forward is something that there's more than the usual level of uncertainty about right now. Weaving the bad news together with the good, uh, the story that emerges is of an economy that's growing at a, only a tepid pace overall. Over the last two quarters for which we have data, that is Q4 and Q1, real GDP has grown at an annual rate of only three-quarters of a percent. That's about one-fourth of our long-run potential. Earlier this year, many observers extrapolated uh, this slowdown into an outright decline in economic activity and concluded that our economy was in or about to enter a recession. But the data we've seen so far um, have not yet shown the sharp and widespread uh, reversals in economic output uh, that define a recession. So while the risk of an acute near-term down, near term downturn has not entirely disappeared, it has diminished substantially in my mind. 
Looking ahead, consumer spending is likely to continue to be bolstered by the government's stimulus checks over the next few months, although the extent of the spending effect is still hard to gauge. Beyond that, I think there are legitimate concerns about the outlook for growth. The timing and size of any decline in commercial construction is uncertain, and it could hamper, could well hamper growth in the second half. In addition, if we see a pickup in the pace of labor market contraction, which has so far been relatively mild, then consumer incomes and spending are likely to slow and restrain overall economic activity going forward. Moreover, the bulk of the stimulus checks will have been distributed soon, and the temporary effects on consumer spending could start wearing off in the fourth quarter. At the same time, it pays not to underestimate consumer resilience. People tend to look forward and will often take transitory income shocks in stride, even severe ones. This well-grounded principle suggests the possibility that consumers will, will save most of their stimulus checks, as appears to have happened in May, and spread out their spending increase smoothly over time. It also suggests the possibility of renewed consumer spending growth if energy prices flatten out, as I remarked that futures markets to, uh, seem to predict. It also pays not to underestimate the power of monetary policy. The Federal Open Market Committee has lowered the federal funds rate from 5.25% to 2% in less than eight months. Adjusting for expected overall inflation brings the current funds rate on a real term uh, on real terms, to well below zero. Thus, we have quite generous monetary stimulus in the pipeline to support economic activity in the months ahead. On the whole, then, I expect growth to be positive, but quite modest for the rest of this year and to gradually pick up over the course of next year. And although the downside risks to growth are no means, by no means negligible, they've diminished significantly in my mind since the beginning of the year. While the growth outlook has improved since the beginning of the year, the inflation outlook has deteriorated noticeably. The latest inflation figures confirm that inflation is unacceptably high. The price index for personal consumption expenditures increased 3.1% over the 12 months in, that ended in May and is up at a 3.9% annual rate for the last three months ending in May. To put that in perspective, I've suggested for several years uh, an inflation target of 1.5% for PCE inflation. Of course, price increases have been concentrated in the food and energy categories. And taking those out, the conventional PCE core inflation rate has been running slightly over 2% over the last year. Because core inflation has traditionally exhibited a fair amount of persistence, last year's core inflation is often a good forecast of the coming year's core inflation rate. The conventional approach to forecasting overall inflation is to combine that rule of thumb for core prices with projections for food and energy prices derived from futures prices. And since futures prices have generally implied flat price paths from here on out, as I remarked earlier, the result is an expectation that overall inflation will decline until it converges with core inflation. Now, one shouldn't ignore the information embedded in market prices, and I don't. Competitive trading markets, especially for futures, are impressively effective mechanisms for weighing and amalgamating a wide array of views. However, the deviations from actual prices, of actual prices from forecasts implied by energy futures prices, have been predominantly on the high side over the last four or five years. 
while it is entirely possible in a statistical matter for this to happen due to chance alone, the risk is that elevated rates of increase in the overall price level become embedded in inflation expectations. We seem to have dodged this risk so far. Despite several years of elevated inflation, the public's expectations for future inflation have not become completely untethered as they were in the 1970s. We have several ways of gauging inflation. None of them are quite perfect, but they all agree that inflation expectations are higher than I would like, but they're relatively stable. That sense of relatively stable inflation expectations is consistent with the behavior of wages. There are no signs yet of a wage price spiral in which wage rates accelerate in a futile attempt to stay ahead of accelerating prices. In fact, gains in overall co compensation have been remarkably stable over the last couple of years. So apparent stability and inflation expectations does not justify complacency, however. Those expectations depend critically on confidence in how the Fed will tend to react to incoming data. Maintaining credibility depends on continuing to conduct policy in a way that is consistent with the stability of inflation expectations. This means acting forcefully should those expectations erode, but it also may mean acting forcefully to prevent those expectations from eroding in the first place. Part of the rationale for the speed with which the Federal Open Market Committee brought down the funds rate earlier this year was the risk that the slowdown we were experiencing would prove to be more severe. While that uncertainty has not entirely disappeared, my sense, as I said, is that the downside risks have diminished appreciably. Just as easing policy aggressively in response to emerging downside risks made sense, withdrawing some of that stimulus as those risks diminish makes eminent sense as well. Moreover, our attention to risk needs to be two-sided, I believe. As we move through this period of low growth, we need to be attuned to the risk that we emerge from the slowdown with inflation following a higher trend than when we went in. This danger associated with the persistence of elevated inflation warrants an additional measure of vigilance, in my view. Again, it's a pleasure to return to speak to you, and thank you very much.